Well, we're going to read the Bible together now, and we're turning to Luke's Gospel this morning, Luke chapter 9, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 28, and we're going to read down to verse 50, and then later in our service, we're going to be thinking about these verses together. So Luke chapter 9, you'll find our reading this morning on page 867, over onto page 668, just a couple of verses over the page. Uh, We have been in and out of Luke's gospel over the past number of years. We're coming back to it now uh, for the next wee while. And this is the passage we had left off on, uh, the previous passage. Uh, Jesus tells us that we're to take up our cross and follow him. And now we have a few more stories about Jesus in this section. So Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. And this is God's word to us. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be here with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. 
you'll find the passage that we read earlier on page uh, 867 over onto 868 of the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning in your Bible to Luke chapter 9, let's pray together for just a moment. Father, we thank you for loving us, for loving us when we least deserved it. We thank you that by trusting in Jesus, we can be yours eternally, now and forever. And we pray that as we come to your word, we would have a, a sense of who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. And we pray that you would speak to us through your sure and certain word. For we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Back in September 2019, I shared a story with you about how I was mistaken for being Spanish. Uh, you might remember, you might not, but in the summer of 2019, we had been in Spain on a week's holiday and a lady in a shop had asked me in Spanish if I would like a plastic bag. Now, I'm not Spanish and I don't speak Spanish, but I was delighted in 2019 because someone thought I looked Spanish. Uh, some of you will know that we were in Spain for a week this year, and following on from previous experience, I wondered if the same thing would happen again, kind of hoping that it would. By about day three of our week-long holiday, so not very far in, and certainly not enough time to acquire a decent tan, I went into a shop to get a few essentials. Gathered up my bits and pieces, went to the till, and said hola to the guy behind the till, because that's what you do when you're in holiday, you try and use a little bit of Spanish or whatever language it is, uh, whatever country you're in. And I kid you not, kid you not, I'm not, not making this up, the guy gave me the total in Spanish. Gave it back to me in Spanish. Spoke back to me in Spanish. I didn't say anything because I didn't want him to know that I was actually Irish, Northern Irish, British, whatever. But I skipped out of the shop and dashed back to tell Lynn. And her response, was just like in 2019, a little bit muted. She said two things, you're not Spanish and you don't look Spanish. And two, of course he thought you were Spanish. You said hello to him in Spanish. So what else was he gonna think? Now the thing is though, and this is kind of my argument, the thing is it happened a few more times and I might've said hola and I might've tried to force it a little bit, but there must be something to it. So if you think there's something to it, you can call me Sergio for the rest of this church year. M mistaking someone's identity, J judging someone by your first impression of them, thinking that a person is some, someone or something they're not. It's something that we do with people all the time, isn't it? But it's something that we can do with Jesus. Let, let me ask you a question at the start of our time in the Bible this morning. Who do you think Jesus is? A good man, a moral teacher, a good example for children to look up to, a saviour or a friend? Well, one of the big issues facing the church in our present age is that we don't have a high enough view of who Jesus is. He doesn't matter enough. And that's a problem because he is at the centre of our faith. One person has said that too many Christians in our generation have seen Christ only as a buddy, losing sight of his majesty. Luke 9, the passage in front of us this morning, is going to show us that Jesus is God's majestic chosen one. And what this passage should do for us is give us a heightened sense of the majesty of our Savior. And it's also going to leave us in no doubt as to who Jesus is. We're going to unpack that by looking at the different stories we've read. But this morning we're, we're coming back to Luke's gospel. This is our, our fourth crack at this New Testament gospel. 
We've been tracking our way through it in part since November 2020, which was in the middle of the COVID era. Uh, we've stopped and started the series, and over the next few months, we're going to take a look at the next few chapters. When we restart a series, this series, it's always good to remember a few things about Luke and about his gospel. Luke was a medical doctor and a gospel worker. He helped Paul and some of the other early Christians. He was very, a very clear thinker, and he wrote both the gospel and the book of Acts. In writing his gospel, he was attempting to put together an orderly account for a man called Theophilus. Now, we're not entirely sure who Theophilus was, but he was probably involved in government in, in the ancient world. Luke puts together the life and ministry and claims of Jesus in a clear and coherent way so that Theophilus can engage with the evidence himself. Now, we don't know whether Theophilus was a Christian and Luke was trying to introduce him to the faith, to teach him about the faith, or if he wasn't a Christian and Luke was trying to convince him of the truth of the faith. Either way, this orderly account written by Luke, who was guided by the Spirit of God, is a really helpful book for us. It's helpful because Luke retells the stories and teachings of Jesus in a way that consistently emphasizes that the gospel is a matter of the heart, not, not external religion. Luke is aiming for the heart as he is carefully compiling a narrative about the life of Jesus. The Christian faith, the, the gospel, is a matter of the heart. So that's a quick refresher on who Luke is and on his style of writing. We're jumping back into the middle of chapter 9. In the section before our passage, Jesus has spoken about what it means to be a disciple, one of his disciples, one of his followers. It means taking up our cross on a daily basis and losing our lives for the sake of the gospel. In verse 28, you'll see that the event we're, looking, we're about to look at happened eight days after these sayings. It's about eight months since we were last in Luke's gospel. But in terms of the gap between the events we're looking at and the previous passage, it's only eight days. What, what, what we see through the stories in front of us this morning is that Jesus is God's majestic chosen one. And as God's majestic chosen one, Jesus does three things. They're all in this passage. He silences our hearts with his glory. He challenges our lack of faith in his, in his power and he saves us from our sinful pride through his death. We're going to take each of those points in turn and look at what Luke tells us about God's majestic chosen one. First of all, Jesus silences our hearts with his glory. Let's read verses 28 to 31. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Luke tells us about the movements of Jesus following his last teaching session. He goes up a mountain with three disciples to pray. Now, when Luke tells us that Jesus prays, it's usually a sign that something very important is about to happen. He takes his inner circle with him up the mountain, Peter, James, and John. The mountain is unidentified, and it doesn't matter that we don't know which one it was. While Jesus was on the mountain praying and the three disciples were fighting sleep, as you can see in verse 32, the appearance of Jesus' face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Once Jesus' appearance is changed, two people appear with him, Moses and Elijah. 
And their, uh, their importance has been talked about a lot, but it's, it's really quite simple. Moses represents the Old Testament law, and Elijah represents the Old Testament prophets. And both are present to show and say that Jesus is the pinnacle of God's revelation. He, he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's really quite an amazing scene. J Jesus appears in all his glory, and two of the greatest Old Testament figures stand beside him. Peter, James, and John see the glory of God, Jesus in his divine nature before their very eyes. And this story is paralleled by Exodus 34, where, where glory comes from the face of Moses. But it's different because the glory on Moses' face wasn't the glory of Moses. It was a reflection. The glory that comes from Jesus is his own. P Peter is just enthralled by what he's seeing, and Luke tells us that he wants to put up three tents Seems like a ridiculous thing to suggest, but Luke says that Peter didn't know what he was saying. Verse 33, he's, he's overcome by the experience. That those on the mountain are then enveloped by a cloud and the voice of God the Father speaks out of the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's an interesting command. We thought about it in the children's address, but we'll come back to it in a moment. Luke finishes the story of the transfiguration in verse 36 by telling us, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Peter and James and John see Jesus as he really is. And what does it do to them? They keep silent. It leaves a lasting impression on them too. At the beginning of his gospel, John wrote, we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father. In his second New Testament letter, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The disciples who saw Jesus in all his glory never forgot it. But initially the experience silenced them. And Jesus silences our hearts with his glory. Have you ever thought about what it will be like to meet Jesus on day one of eternity? Here's what it won't be like. You won't run up to Jesus and give him a bump on the arm and say, hey, Jesus, hey, buddy, how are you doing? Here's what it will be like. You, you'll be silent because you'll see him as he really is, in all his glory, in all his dazzling purity and perfection. Jesus silences our hearts with his glory. That's what happened to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it's what should happen every time you come to church. Here's a question to, to drill down into what's going on in your heart this morning. What were you thinking as you came to church today? Wish you'd taken a lie in, watched online. Really don't want to go today, got so much on this week. Really could do with some me time. Do you see how flawed our hearts are if we think in that way? The glory of Jesus, of, of who he is, of all that he has done, should excite us, thrill us, and make us come expectantly to church Sunday by Sunday. The thing is, God doesn't speak through clouds anymore. It's as the author of Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus and his word are God's final revelation to us. And as we meet as Jesus people, as we open Jesus' word, he reveals his glory to us. That's what's happening today. That's what happens every week in church, no matter who opens the Bible. Jesus silences our hearts with his glory. Every week he makes us stop and realize and remember 
and take account of who he is. Jesus silences our hearts with his glory and he also challenges our faith, uh, challenges our faith in, in his power. That's the second thing we see in this chapter. Jesus challenges our lack of faith in his power. The, the transition to the next section we're looking at this morning is really jarring. Up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John had seen Jesus in unspeakable glory. But as they come down the mountain the next morning, they're reminded that the world is an ugly, broken place. On the mountaintop, they witnessed God the Father's delight in his glorious Son. In the crowd below, there's a father in agony because his only son is demon-possessed. Look at verses 37 to 40. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. There are a couple of things that make this story quite memorable. First, the child's condition is truly pitiable. The, 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 the demon's oppression of the child is described in heart-wrenching terms. Many of us are parents here this morning. We wouldn't want our children to suffer a tenth of the pain described here, never mind all that's described. The child shrieks, is thrown into convulsions, foams at the mouth, and it doesn't ease up. Matthew's account of the same story identifies the condition as epilepsy. It's interesting that Luke, as a medical doctor, doesn't do that. He knows the difference between normal epilepsy and a demonically induced epileptic fit. Luke is trying to show us that Jesus knows that this, just isn't a, that this just isn't a disease. It's also an invasion from hell into this little boy's life. The, the second memorable thing about this story is that the disciples aren't able to cast the demon out. The father of the child says that in verse 40. Now the disciples in question are the nine who didn't go up the mountain. But their inability to cast the demon out is surprising. Now, why is it surprising? It's surprising because of Luke 9, 1 and 2. Just look at what it says at the start of this chapter. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The disciples' failure wasn't due to a lack of power or authority. It's something else. The question is what? And the answer comes through what Jesus says in verse 41 to the Father's request. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. There's, a, there's debate over who Jesus is addressing here. Is it the crowd generally or the disciples specifically? It's probably both. Jesus says that there's a serious spiritual problem at work in everyone's hearts. And he says they're a faithless and twisted generation. The problem Jesus zeroes in on is that the crowd and the 12 disciples are guilty of lacking faith. Now, Jesus' power and authority isn't limited by human weakness or failing. It also isn't limited by our lack of faith. In verse 42, Jesus rebukes the evil spirit and the child is restored. Beautiful picture of redemption. But back to this issue of faith. It's, a, it's not a huge surprise that the crowd lacks faith. Crowds in the Gospels are almost 
almost always portrayed negatively. They bump along behind Jesus for a while, but they're gone by the time he's, he's on trial and arrested. It is a surprise that the disciples lack faith, though. And it makes what God the Father said on the Mount of Transfiguration even more relevant. What did God the Father say? This is my, cho- my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The nine disciples at the bottom of the mountain hadn't listened to Jesus. And this story challenges our, fa- our lack of faith in Jesus' power. This story presses home the need for faith. Faith in this story is confidence in Jesus' power and authority to help us. It's normally pretty easy to trust Jesus when things are going well. We might even find faith close at hand when we need to trust Jesus with a problem as long as we can see the solution. But it's situations like this one, like this story, that really reveal the degree to which we trust Jesus' wisdom, timing, love, and power. When the disease isn't cured, when the person doesn't get better, when the job offer doesn't come, when the relationship comes to an end when we thought it was going somewhere, in those cases, we see what or who it is we really trust. Now, this is deep heart surgery for us, and it's, it's a challenge to us individually. Will we listen to Jesus and his word and have the faith to believe that he will work things out for our good and glory? As a Christian, what, what are you trusting in and where is your hope and faith this morning? That this passage shows us that Jesus is God's majestic chosen one and that he silences our hearts with his glory, that he challenges our lack of faith in his power and that he saves us from our sinful pride through his death. The shadow of the cross, the cross is all over this section. At the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus and Luke tells us the topic of their conversation. Look at verse 31. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now the word departure seems like the wrong word. You read it and it doesn't really make sense, but literally the word is exodus. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are discussing Jesus' exodus. Now we've looked at exodus Exodus or part of exodus And what we've seen is that the story is a paradigm or an example of salvation in the Old Testament. More simply, what happens in Exodus is a picture of what happens to us. Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about the new Exodus that's about to be accomplished through the cross. In the first Exodus, God's people were hopelessly enslaved to a cruel tyrant. When they couldn't help themselves, God sent them a deliverer who led them out of bondage. And now through the second exodus, Jesus has come to lead his people out from an even greater slavery, slavery to sin and death. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension, the greater Moses will lead God's people in a greater exodus to free them from a greater bondage. Then in verses 43 and 45, Jesus predicts his death. The disciples don't understand it and they don't ask questions, but Jesus spells it out. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The necessity of the cross is in this section too. In verses 46 to 48, the disciples start arguing among themselves. And here's how the argument goes. I am the greatest disciple of Jesus. No, you're not. I am the greatest. It's actually neither of you. It's me. I am the greatest. They behave like children cooped up in a house on a wet summer's day. They're bickering and sniping. 
And the argument is basically about who the most faithful Christian is. Do you ever play that game in your mind? You're sitting in church thinking, well, I'm more faithful than them and them and definitely them. Do you know what that's called? It's called pride, spiritual pride. And the Bible says that it's sin. And Jesus calls it out. He flies under the radar, but he doesn't miss his target. Look at verses 47 and 48. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, it's a fascinating comment. Jesus, standing with his his disciples, listening to them argue, he knows the reasoning of their hearts. He can read them like a book. He took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is among you all is the one who is great. The child Jesus pulls to the side becomes an object lesson. He tells his disciples and us to become as little children. We're to be childlike, not childish. There is a difference. But in what sense are we to be like children? In the sense of trusting our heavenly father. Think of, think of it like this. What does a child do? when they're about to cross the road and their mum and dad says, hold my hand. What does the child do? They put their hand in their mum and dad's hand implicitly because they trust their parents. And that's what Jesus is saying. Trust me. You you can't believe in me and then not trust me. That's what faith is. It's trust. Trust that when we believe in him, he will take our sins away. Trust that when we put our hand in his He will never let us go. Jesus is God's majestic chosen one and he silences our hearts with his glory. He challenges our lack of faith in his power and he saves us from our sinful pride through his death. This is a really good passage for us to look at at any time of year, but it's a really helpful one for us as we think about another church year beginning. September is coming and everything's going to restart. But this morning, our focus and attention has been drawn towards Jesus. And that's who church is all about. He is why we meet together. And this passage realigns our thinking. Jesus is more more than just a buddy. He's more than just a helpful guy to have around. He, He is God's majestic chosen one. As a Christian, do you have too low a view of who Jesus is? Luke addresses our hearts. And he wants us to realize deep in our souls who our saviour really is. For for those of you who aren't Christians this morning, let me finish by speaking to you. After what we've looked at this morning, there's no way that you can be confused about the identity of Jesus Christ. You you might have thought a lot lot of things about Jesus, but this passage is so clear. The, The question for you to go home thinking about is, would you want to meet him and him be against you? Would you want to meet Jesus in all his glory and for him to be against you. One day he'll return in all his glory, the same glory that was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's run the tape and think about how it might go for you if you're not trusting in him. You die, and immediately you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. There he is in all his glory. His clothes are dazzling white, and you're silent. You stand before him, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? You shuffle your feet, Think for a moment and then say, I went to church. I didn't really do anything bad. I sent my children to church things. I lived a quiet and ordinary life. Didn't really annoy anybody. God's majestic chosen one responds, 
The, the, the only way for you to enter my heaven is by trusting in me. Did, did you do that? My minister told us to do that every week, but I never quite got around to it. You, you do realize that at that point, the conversation's over and there'll be a great separation between you and God, an eternal separation. We're winding back up for another church season. The summer's rattling by. As we begin to get going again, don't make the mistake of misunderstanding who Jesus is. Luke 9 tells us that he is God's majestic chosen one. It tells us that he silences our hearts with his glory. He challenges our lack of faith in his power. And he saves us through our sinful pride through his death. Jesus is God's majestic chosen one. And you should trust him if you haven't already. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And as we speak to you again in prayer, we're so conscious of who Jesus is. And we stay silent for a moment and think of his glory, of the honor that's due to him, of his majesty and power. Father, we bow our hearts in awe and wonder at who he is and all that he has done for us. Father, your word has challenged us this morning in terms of our, our faith in you, our faith in your power. We pray that you would help us to trust in your ways for us, that we would know deep in our souls that your ways for us are good and that you are working things out for your glory. And we thank you most of all that you've saved us from our sin through Jesus' death on the cross. We pray that we would enjoy new life in him and would follow him faithfully in the days to come. We pray for those who haven't yet trusted in Christ. We pray that today they, they would take a dealing with him and would turn to him in repentance and faith for the first time. Father, we thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts this day, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.